Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are. And we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. In a moment, if it's okay with all of you, a few uh, assembly notices for our cooperative. Um, Then I'm going to do something that some of you will probably collapse uh, when I say this. But I'm going to pose the question. Amidst the madness of Liz Truss and the delusions of a figure who presided over Britain as Prime Minister for four catastrophic weeks, does she pose one important question that needs addressing? Uh, I pose it, and I think she does, actually, for reasons I'll come on to. And then we will get through as many of your uh, brilliant questions as it's possible to do. So is that okay? That's what we're going to do in our time together while you're running, baking, walking up Arthur's seat, walking by a beautiful coastal path in Australia or whatever. So first of all, the notices. Uh, We are almost in March. I can't quite sort of believe the speed at which March is heading towards us. And of course, after that, the kind of election frenzy will be kind of intensifying. Um, So I'm doing uh, the first live shows of the year. On March the 13th, the legendary Rope Tackle Art Centre in Shoreham. So that will be a brand new show there. And then that Saturday, March the 16th, I'm at the York Book Festival speaking about my new book, Turning Points. And as well as reflecting on the turning points in the book, posing another question to the one I'm daring to do today about trust, and that's whether we are on the edge of a turning point in the UK with this general election and a likely change of government. Change of government doesn't necessarily mean a turning point. Will it this time? Anyway, that's York, Saturday, uh, March the 16th. And then for the first time this year, live at King's Place on uh, March the 26th for a brand new show. As we do then move, the budget will have happened and all that kind of madness. Um, And then we will be looking towards the May local election. Maybe he'll have called an election. I doubt it. Some of you think he will uh, for May. Uh, But anyway, we will be amidst much drama and we will mix profit with pleasure and we will delve deep but have some fun as well at all those events. And you can, uh, I'll put some of the links on the blurb for the podcast. Uh, Alternatively, you can go to the relevant websites of all those three locations and book your tickets. So see you there. Now, Liz Truss and elements of the Tory right. The Tory right are fractured in different uh, parts of a kind of wacky arena. But her one is, of course, and obviously deeply flawed. I have not become a Trussite, if there is such a thing. And yet she raises something that is going to get lost in the sort of disdain that she generates these days. And this is the thing that she raises that interests me. The power of non-elected agencies in the United Kingdom. Uh, And she cites, I'll, I'll read a bit of her speech to that kind of crazed 
American conference she was at at the end of last week. Um, but she gives the examples of the power of the Office of Budget Responsibility, the Bank of England, the IMF, and and then, of course, the media and all the rest of it. Um, as examples of constraints on a democratically elected government that actually undermines democracy. Now, this fascinates me because there are echoes in her thesis with the uh, arguments of Tony Benn in the 70s and 80s. Now, let me say right away, Ben was a figure of uh, 10,000 leagues above Liz Truss, who is a lightweight. She can't uh, frame a speech properly. She's not a speaker. Uh, Ben wrote and delivered speeches like works of art. But I'm fascinated by where the questions she asks chimes with the ones that he asked, the sort of counter to it. So, you know, one of her things, and incidentally, this is outrageous, is that basically uh, the kind of left establishment in the UK rule undermining any scope for the Tory right, even if elected as a government, to do anything. And Tony Benn had the counter thesis, which actually had more to it in terms of an argument, um, that even when a Labour government was elected, it wasn't really ruling uh, because it was hemmed in by non-elected bodies, the civil service, the IMF, and uh, and all of that. Uh, so there is one echo. Now, the obvious flaw in the trust uh, case here is that Tories ruled for 18 years from 1979 and have done so for 14 years since 2010 and have been able to implement policies uh, from the radical right almost effortlessly. Remember, Cameron in 2010 didn't win an overall majority, still implemented real-term spending cuts, radical reforms of public services that Thatcher would have shied away from. Uh, She would have shied away from some of the spending cuts, I suspect, as well. She she never, although she um, uh, didn't spend anywhere near enough in the 80s, even though she had North Sea oil pumping out like a gift from the gods, but the, she didn't do real-term spending cuts. So, so the Cameron-Osborne experiment, backed by the Lib Dems, was an experiment in uh, radical right economics, and she was part of it. She rose up uh, under Cameron uh, trusts into the cabinet and given all kinds of jobs. So that, of course, is comical in the same way that people like Frost, Frosty Frost, say that uh, the problem with Brexit is that uh, Remainers have kind of been running it when he himself negotiated the bloody Brexit deal that we've got, etc. All of that is crazy. Uh, And with Tony Benn as well, although I I admired him for being one of these few people in politics who, after a period in government, chooses to reflect on what happened. Uh, now, he, he, he reflected in some ways uh, with a total lack of recognition of the challenges of 
being a Labour government, uh, especially in the 70s when they had no overall majority, and, uh, and refused to acknowledge a lot of the good things that that 70s government did. Uh, Michael Foote, also on the left, though not by the end the Benite left of the Labour Party, was a great defender of that 74 to 79 government and highlighted a whole list of reforms that they brought in. Um, but anyway, nonetheless, at the end of the 79 election, uh, Ben said, I'm not going to stand for the shadow cabinet. I'm going to tour the country uh, and, and analyze why it was the uh, wishes of party members were vetoed by the leadership and, and we lost. Um, and although that drove his colleagues bonkers, as I say, he did it at the end of the 1970 Wilson government, from the government from 64 to 70. It was when he became radical. And again, although he didn't acknowledge all the constraints then on Wilson and devaluation and all the rest of it, um, most people in politics just get on with it. Oh, yeah, will there be a leadership contest? Can I stand? You know, What do I need to say to win it and all the rest of it? Uh, he liked to delve deep, like all of us, not necessarily reaching the same conclusions as some of us in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. And he posed the question in the way that Truss has done about um, the scope for elected governments to rule and the non-elected bodies uh, having, in some cases, greater power than the elected ones. Uh, Tony Benn included in that, of course, Europe. Uh, he was uh, anti uh, the common market, as it was then, uh, campaigned against Britain staying in in the 75 referendum. But he included all these other agencies, like the IMF, which is on the list of trusses, uh, list of villains. Now, again, there is a problem with the argument in their very different ways Ben and Truss put forward. If you borrow money or feel the need to borrow money, you lose some control over what you can do. So Tony Benn used to condemn the fact that the IMF demanded spending cuts in response for a loan. The problem is Dennis Healy, the then Chancellor, felt the need for a loan. We were running out of money and he needed the money and therefore had to do a deal, and the deal was spending cuts. Uh, now, Tony Benn just put the argument, a non-elected body, the International Monetary Fund, was determining the economic policy of an elected Labour government. Now, the reason it was, was because the elected Labour government had chosen or felt the need to borrow the money. Incidentally, later, both Dennis Healy and Tony Benn came together and wondered whether they needed to have done it. The Treasury got their sums wrong, but that's a slightly different issue. And similarly, there is a case to be made that the automatic assumption that the august body, the OBR, set up by George Osborne, the Office for Budget Responsibility, comes to acquire such authority that it becomes a constraint on a democratically elected government that is at odds with its democratic legitimacy. I, I think you, we just need to think about it. 
So, for example, trusts felt the need to bypass the OBR for that preposterous financial statement from Kwasi Kwarteng, knowing that the OBR would uh, condemn it, in effect. It, it, it doesn't condemn overtly. It just shows that what uh, they were doing was utterly reckless. It would have done. But, you know, who had the right to make a move? Um, now, I know she didn't win a general election, but she was absolutely the legitimate prime minister. The, the last general election meant the Tory party was going to serve one full term with that huge majority. And she happened to be the latest prime minister during this wild few years. Um, but wholly legitimate, even though it was done by a leadership contest with the party. That's how Gordon Brown got in in 2007. Again, completely legitimate. So who had the right to make a move? Now, we all, I suspect, every one of us, whether uh, in the cooperative, um, some of you are contemplating still voting conservative and all the rest of it, I think we would all agree it was a catastrophically misjudged statement. You know, we just disagree with the substance of it. Uncosted, unfunded tax cuts was the last thing this country needed. It aches for investment. But that's a different issue. We weren't elected into government. She was. Um, yet the OBR made life very uh, difficult, although not overtly. It's just the fact that she didn't consult the OBR caused some of the instability. Uh, the Bank of England uh, made life difficult. The Treasury was always going to be in opposition to the elected government's economic policy. That's why she got rid of the permanent secretary. Now, I think the permanent secretary she sacked is brilliant, but I'm not the elected prime minister. And also, of course, the IMF made clear its disapproval and so on. And what I think the question she poses kind of gets down to is this. There hasn't really been a serious discussion or debate about where power lies in Britain and where it should do. Ben used to ask five questions about democracy. He was obsessed with democracy. He was less interested, actually, in economics. Uh, he did two books in the early 80s, Arguments for Socialism and Arguments for Democracy. And the book about democracy is written with more passion. Uh, because that's what really interested him. And two of the questions were, how did these people get into their job and how do we get rid of them? And of course, there is an answer to that with democratically elected governments. In other words, one way in which a democratic sequence might have played out is that trust got away and then voters when they got the first opportunity, removed her in a kind of landslide defeat. That could have been a democratic mechanism. But that didn't happen. These other bodies made sure she never got a chance to cause more mayhem than she did in those early weeks. And it is interesting that um, when Gordon Brown uh, became Chancellor in 97, the first thing he did was to make the Bank of England independent, to give up the power of interest rates. Now, he did it very subtly. Uh, he still had the power to set the terms of the independent bank, the inflation target. He selected the Monetary Policy Committee and did so with some very interesting appointments, the leftish 
economics specialist Danny Blanchflower was on the first Monetary Policy Committee, for example. Um, a left economic radical, actually. We, we interviewed him for the podcast. But that's what he did. Uh, he gave away power. And I used to write about Gordon Brown at the time that he tied himself up in chains in order to be free. But in order to reassure the markets and the powerful Tory media, he gave away power. And they did, it worked. And he then had the freedom to increase public spending without the markets going bonkers, for example. And that was the very first move. But a democratically elected government lost the power to set interest rates. Um, and again, now Rachel Reeves is saying that she's going to give even more powers to the Office for Budget Responsibility to give their verdict on any public spending proposal of any significance. Um, now, I know people associated with that august body, the OBR, who have worries about this because um, public spending judgments are highly political. For example, to go ahead with the high-speed railway and then to scrap it. These are highly kind of political decisions. And I think they are quite wary about this new power being given to them. But the effect will be, uh, no doubt uh, Rachel Reeves hopes it will give confidence that a Labour government can be trusted with public spending because it's being audited by the OBR. But it could also make it very difficult to make the investment that people are crying out for um, in, 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 as public services collapse. So again, is it right that a democratically elected government becomes constrained by these non-elected bodies? Now, of course, they have power. They, they select the chair of the OBR and all the rest of it. But the OBR has considerable sway. And you can see this across a whole range of things. Agencies run by people who aren't well known with real power over how to deliver public services, you know, the Environment Agency, the, the Flood Agency, all these kind of agencies, those obscure figures who ran HS2 and blew money, some of it, on wasteful projects. Uh, who were they? We've done it about railways more widely. Who's in charge? Network Rail, the rail operating companies, the many mediating agencies between Network Rail and the railway companies, uh, the Transport Secretary, the Chancellor, the Prime Minister, who's in charge? And when it is not clear, uh, problems begin. And I remember when I was at the uh, Independent, columnist at the Independent, uh, saying to the editor, we should do um, the hidden power list, because everyone was doing power lists, you know, especially when New Labour came into power. You know, who was the most powerful? Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, who was third? You know, is it Peter Madison, Alistair Campbell, Ed Balls, all that kind of stuff. And I said, a heck of a lot of power is in the hands of people who aren't invited on the Today programme because they're not famous, who run all these quangos and agencies. And you can see the problems arising from the decision of elected people to give away power in order to give more confidence in them, even though power becomes blurred, part of the problem with the post office. Yes, it's nationalised, but who was in control? Arm's length from ministers. Was it the chair of the post office? 
office. I mean, the latest one's just been sacked, but he wasn't involved directly in what happened. Uh, he only became chair later. Uh, so, yeah, a minister can sack the chair, but do they get involved very often? And anyway, post office ministers come and go every 10 seconds. Who's in charge? Uh, non-elected figures who are theoretically running the post office on a day-to-day basis, or ministers, well, ministers ultimately, but if they move every 10 seconds, they've got no real control over what's going on. So let's now briefly return to Truss and what she said. Now, say, uh, you know, I haven't gone crazy. I do realise that this uh, event was just bonkers. And there she was with Steve Bannon and all these people. But here's a bit of her speech, which I do think uh, it will be lost because she now lacks all credibility. But it shouldn't be lost, this. She was saying her policies were stymied, what, what she calls from the usual suspects in the media and in the corporate world, but also from people that were meant to work for the government, the Office of Budget Responsibility, the Bank of England. These organisations sought to undermine the policies. Even the IMF intervened. Now, in the end, of course, it was Tory MPs who got rid of trust. She, she just couldn't carry on. Um, but what was the role of these uh, non-elected uh, institutions? And although we all supported them against the madness of that budget because we disagreed with the recklessness of the tax cuts um, and could see where it was leading, do they have the democratic legitimacy to act in that way? I think it's, you know, quite interesting. And then she goes on, you know, this famous quote that you'll have seen, we need a bigger bazooka because we're operating in a hostile environment. Now, remember, conservatives operate in a dream environment compared with what Labour governments operate in. So she's wrong about that. But it's interesting what she then says. We've got to challenge the system itself and be prepared to take that on as conservatives. I think we need to draw inspiration from popular democracy movements, the founding fathers in the United States, the Chartists, those people who want to make sure the will of the people was delivered in their country. Now, that kind of, again, the link with Tony Benn is fascinating because Tony Benn used to say in his speech, he always used to cite the Chartists as, an, as a model for uh, bringing about change. And he used to link it with the suffering. Indeed, he went back to Jesus Christ. He said, when you're feeling down about this right-wing government of Margaret Thatcher's, you've got to remember that change is brought about through protest. Look at Jesus Christ, the levelers, the suffragettes, and the Chartists. And uh, here from the right, the kind of crazed right, Truss is doing the same. And it is, I think a valid question about whether non-elected agencies have got far too much power in the UK. And even where governments have theoretical power, like over the post office, it has become deliberately blurred with phrases like arm's length government. So there you are. I'm a trussite. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Um, but I think there is a point in there which really merits intelligent discussion, not as some deranged American convention, but amongst all of us lot and others. Where does power 
lie in the UK? And it was the question posed by Tony Benn, and in a very different way posed by her. And in a way, one that others agonise over in less overt ways across the political spectrum when they pull levers and nothing happens. Um, from many Labour governments and ministers in them to Dominic Cummings when he was supposedly omnipotent, what he was for a time, in Johnson's mad number 10. Anyway, few thoughts there, but now over to you for our never-ending debate. And if you want to join our never-ending debate, like Bob Dylan's on a never-ending tour, I'm on a never-ending tour, we're on a never-ending debate, any points or questions, please email steverick14, steverick14 at icloud.com. And if you're out running at the moment, you think, oh, yeah, well, there's something I want to say to the cooperative that email was there at about 25 minutes into the uh, podcast now time together so let's go over to some questions beginning with maggie fletcher Maggie raises a point. I haven't had time to check. It's a, a curious thing. Uh, she says there are 199 Labour MPs currently listed in the Commons, but 202 were elected in 2019. I know Starmer has expelled some, Corbyn, Diane Abbott, but what about all those by-election victories? Yeah, another two came in last week, of course, from those uh, incredible by-elections for Labour. So I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I'll have to... Uh, uh, check it out. I mean, some have been, others have been suspended. Nick Brown, you know, used to be the chief whip um, to the point where I think, I mean, he's not standing again. But I don't know, where, you know, there, there's been quite a lot of comings and goings in that parliamentary Labour Party. Uh, yeah, and Maggie mentioned something else about, um, uh, for those of you who kindly subscribe on Patreon, and uh, the rest of you, by the way, you should do it. We're doing a really interesting series at the moment, I hope. It's interesting anyway, uh, under the theme of preparing for power. Looking back at uh, the interviews I did as political editor of The New Statesman, uh, with all the key New Labour figures in the run-up to the 1997 election, and comparing what they were saying with what then happened, and now, of course, as Labour are once again in that rare position for them of being on the edge of power... And the first one I did was an uh, uh, explosive interview I did with Claire Short in August uh, 1996, less than a year before the 97 election, where she really went for Blair, even though she was a prominent figure in the shadow cabinet, one of the better known ones. Uh, she absolutely went for him and his office and the way they were conducting things. And she said new Labour was a lie because to dismiss old Labour was just terrible. Um, and on it went, and she praised John Smith. And Maggie Fletcher said, I was interested about what Claire Short said, read John Smith's leadership style. Ken Livingston always said that Smith was the only Labour leader who positively wanted and enjoyed discussing ideas and policy with him. Kinnock, Blair and Brown ignored him or worse. Uh, Love the podcast and recommend it to all my grandchildren, two of whom are studying politics at university. Oh, great. Well, get all those students, Maggie. Yeah, uh, subscribing and joining us all. That would be fantastic. Um, Re your point. I think, by the way, I'm sure John Smith found Ken Livingston annoying at times as well. However, I do think John Smith's leadership 
which was short and therefore has kind of been airbrushed out of history almost, and certainly in terms of analysis and reflection. Um, there are things to learn about that short period uh, of his leadership between 92 and 94 when he tragically died of a heart attack. And, and it is about inclusiveness. You see, the Labour Party after that 92 defeat, which was unexpected, could have really gone through one of its traumatised civil wars about why they lost and what needed to be done and so on. It didn't happen. And one of the reasons it didn't happen is that Smith had the self-confidence to be inclusive. He didn't feel the need to appease the right-wing papers by being seen to take on uh, those the right-wing papers disapproved of within the Labour Party. So, for example, you know, Claire Shaw herself could have been trouble. She liked him. Uh, John Prescott could have been trouble. And he was going around complaining, actually, about people like Tony Blair and Gordon Brown going off to the United States to see what, learn lessons from Bill Clinton's victory. He used to call them the beautiful people. What are they doing, the beautiful people, you know, just going out to the United States? But Smith said, let, let them do it. It's fine, John. And in the end, Prescott became a vital ally to John Smith in his successful bid to create a new method of electing leaders, one member, one vote. Um, he managed what could have been a really challenging, difficult problem well. Now, uh, Blair and Brown saw that partly as being too complacent, um, that style of leadership. But I think they are wrong about that. I, but he did have a kind of self-confidence that most Labour leaders lack because he had been a cabinet minister. You know, elected power didn't have the intimidating mystery it often has for Labour leaders and, and partly explains Keir Starmer's caution now because although Starmer has had the experience of public office big time, uh, it's not been through an election victory, whereas he had that and he anyway had a kind of intellectual self-confidence. And that inclusiveness, rather than being seen taking on bits of his party and you know, briefing against bits of it, I think provided an important link uh, for when Blair and Brown took over in 94, because it was a relatively calm party after the trauma of a defeat, and defeats can often turn Labour parties crazy. Um, anyway, thank you very much. James Gill was also on the Claire Short interview. Those subscribed Patreon will know about it. Those who don't, please do. And uh, yeah, he was uh, wondering whether uh, an era is returning where people at the top of politics are going to be able to speak out a bit more like she did. She was never sacked by Blair, never. Not after that interview or throughout her time. She resigned in the end over Iraq. Um, I don't think there is that space now. Uh, there is a bit in the Tory party, James, as we've been discussing. I mean, there was a few days at the end of last week where the Tory party, you know, was was becoming absurd on another level. Where you, we've talked about the trust convention in America. You had that uh, mania, the, the former vice chairman of the Tory party, uh, Lee Anderson, having to lose the whip because of racist comments he made against Sadiq Khan. You had Suella Braverman saying, you know, the country's ruled by, 
Islamic anti-Semites. They, they all. She was in the cabinet a few minutes ago. They all seem to think power is completely elsewhere. Uh, <laughs> uh, wrongly. Um, so that's an example of indiscipline on a disastrous scale. But I think the, the, the alternative extreme of robotic figures all uttering the same cliches in the end is as destructive. There has to be what Tony Blair would call a third way, where you can have some intelligent discussion and scrutiny of po policy without it appearing as if a political party is falling apart. Okay, so thank you, Joe, Joe Ruffles, uh, who is always on the go, traveling left, right and center. Uh, he says, I've been loving your Preparing for Power uh, series on Patreon. Thank you, Joe. I listened to the Peter Mandelson one, walking along the rushing river Regnitz after a Bamberger Symphonica concert a few weeks ago. Uh, what a romantic image that is. Um, and then I heard the Claire Short one travelling to Luxembourg from the Yucatan this past week. Yeah, well, um, some of us are in North London, Joe. Uh, anyway, I'm not going anywhere very far. Um, Anyway, Joe listened to an interview with Nick Robinson with a member of Just Stop Oil on the Today programme. And while the important subject was when it's appropriate to take protests to an MP's private life, I couldn't help asking myself why Just Stop Oil worries about taking oil out of the ground in a global market where Putin, the Saudis and a host of others uh, aren't, who aren't bothered by climate change have plenty and will offer it out. Instead of focusing on cutting carbon going into the atmosphere, e.g. insulating homes, transitioning to green electrical generation, promoting technologies to decarbonise air travel. Personally, I wish the UK could become a world leader in these technologies and practices, which help create markets beyond oil. And so I wish Labour had left home insulation in their climate pledge. Yeah, I think Kiyosama agonized about this. He knows that uh, home insulation has worked in other countries like Italy. But because of the tax and spend debate in Britain, uh, we're not allowed to have the same. Uh, but I think you're right. That's where the focus should be. And he, he adds, if your never ending rock and roll politics tour ever needs a travel coordinator, that might be the one talent I could contribute to the cooperative. Well, you're on. Uh, you're always on the go. All our travel needs will be met by you, basically, uh, Nick. And he, he adds he will do so in the most carbon minimal way uh, that gets us to the debates on time. However, I will consider synthetic fuels. Ah, right. Okay. Um, thank you very much, uh, Joe. Hope to see you soon at one of these live shows. Uh, Owen Jarvis. Uh, oh, yeah, this is about um, tactical voting. His mum wonders about voting tactically for the Lib Dems. The Lib Dems, by the way, seem to have completely disappeared from the public debate. Um, and uh, he was asking about them and the wisdom of tactical voting. It is overwhelmingly clear, uh, Owen, that your mum should vote uh, tactically. Tactical voting will play a big part in this election, uh, depending, of course, what she wants to achieve. But if she wants to achieve uh, the end of the Tory government, uh, uh, you have to vote tactically. The Lib Dems and where they are positioned, they are part of the anti 
Tory, informal, unrecognised coalition. Overtly, Ed Davey, their leader, has said that. But of course, it is a big leap from where they were with that coalition with uh, David Cameron and George Osborne. Um, but that's where they are. And um, uh, it'd be interesting. We'll do a podcast about the Lib Dems at some point because they will be a player in the election, even though they seem to be out of the national debate. In a way, Paddy Ashton was very clever as leader of the Lib Dems in the build up to the 97 election. He could have been swamped by Blair and New Labour, uh, but instead made himself relevant by forming a relationship with uh, New Labour and Blair, well, just Blair, actually. It all kind of ended in tears. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. So now I'm going to have to stop because I'm I'm on the road a bit over the next few days. So we'll have a question time special soon. But I'm going to uh, kind of summarise some of the others. But I'm not going to have time to go through some of them. Thank you all for your emails. They're all great. Paul Langhorn. Uh, oh, he just got around to subscribe to Patreon. Yeah. Um, and uh, he is uh, uh, wondering about... Oh, he's just reading Peter Mandelson's biography, The Third Man, autobiography. It's a good read, good read. Uh, but he uh, points out some of the constraints under which Keir Starmer is navigating himself to power and understands, therefore, the caution. Uh, we have uh, Howard Bryant, our cool member of the Rock and Roll a politics cooperative who's there working in the Nebworth studios recording cool albums. Um, he has a form of words which he wonders can address um, the tax cuts that are coming up in the budget and Labour's response to them. Uh, and they are clever words focusing on the spending cuts that would follow. But that's the dilemma. She won't oppose them, Rachel Reeves, because of the fear of this tax bombshell, which even Howard's formulation doesn't quite get her out of. Uh, Venetia Kane wonders whether the BBC would have had the guts to uh, broadcast Mr Bates versus the post office. I think they would in terms of the politics, because the politics, although damning, doesn't sort of condemn, say, Rishi Sunak or in the Johnson era, Boris Johnson. I don't think they'd have commissioned it because of a, uh, one of the problems with BBC management at the moment. I think they would say, oh, who, that's boring for a drama. Who's interested in the post office? Um, and well done, ITV, for not thinking in such clunky cliches. Uh, Peter Wilkening has a, a slogan for Labour, uh, which I don't understand, Peter. Uh, look after your broom. Um, uh, Peter, uh, but you're in Falmouth, so you're in beauty, Peter. Uh, I'm down in that part of the world sometimes. So, yeah, we should have a 
coffee. But there is a great slogan somewhere uh, amongst these uh, emails. Where is it now? Hold on. Um, blimey, I've got to find this one because it's so good. Oh, God, I can't find it. I'll read it next time. But it's a play on Starmer's name. And um, I, I think it's so good I'm going to let his office know about it. Um, but anyway, it's for some reason, I, I haven't got it on this list, but I, thank you whoever for sending it in. I'll read it out next week. I'll track it down. I don't know where it's gone. Um, so, yeah, Alison Keyes was wondering. She hasn't got a candidate there yet from the Labour Party in her constituency, Brig and Gould. They will, they'll stand everywhere. The two big parties will stand everywhere. Uh, Simon Lockyer is wondering about the impact of reform. Be very, very big. Uh, Seb Schmoller predicts still a May election. I doubt it, but you never know. Um, so, yeah, and, and James Leach is fascinated by the impact of parents on leaders, fathers and leaders, uh, in the light of uh, Tom Baldwin's book on Starmer, which is something which we need to return to, because when a book shines light on a leader, we definitely uh, need to reflect on that light at some point. Um, but not today, OK? I've got to get going. I'm on the... Oh, yeah, I've, I found the slogan. Phew. Matthew Tucker sent it in. How about this? Steer Karma with Keir Starmer. Doesn't that tick all the boxes? Anyway, I'll leave you with that uh, thought. And thank you for sending it in, Matthew. Uh, I know it was a, a friend of yours who came up with it. Um, so, yeah, live events coming up in March. Hooray! And loads of stuff to reflect on in the coming days. So we need to stick together as we navigate our way through this year that is speeding on to its denouement at some point, an election and then what? And if you could subscribe, that would be great. If you could leave a review, even better. Only if you kind of like it, you know, hugely. But thanks so much for tuning in. And uh, yeah, see you all very soon. Take care. Bye. Bye.